Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And it's my pleasure today to be joined by Professor Stephen Bittner, who is the author of Whites and Reds, A History of Wine in the Lands of Tsar and Commissar, published by Oxford University Press 2020. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. So uh, a bit about our um, guest today, Stephen Bittner, is professor of history at Sonoma State University. In addition to this book, Whites and Reds, he's the author of The Many Lives of Khrushchev's Thaw, published in 2008, and the editor of Dmitry Shepilov's memoir, The Kremlin Scholar, published in 2007. In 2019, Bittner was briefly in the news when Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma singled out a fellowship that the National Endowment for the Humanities had awarded to Bittner in support of Whites and Reds as a federal fumble and an example of wasteful government spending. Bittner did not return the fellowship. I try to do that without laughing. <laughs> so let's, let's leave that in. I think that's a fine introduction, um, Stephen. Let's talk about the book. Um, I've got a question for you, first of all. So what motivated you um, to write the book and, and to start with this topic? Uh, well, I think that's always the most interesting question for any scholar is, um, how did we find the topic? Uh, and, uh, and for me, it was, um, entirely serendipitous. I, uh, was tenured in 2008, um, 
and uh, you know, I decided that I was going to uh, try to enjoy life uh, in a way that I hadn't when I was uh, storming to finish my first book. And uh, and of course, I live here in Sonoma County in California wine country, um, and so I, I became really interested in um, in wine and uh, the technologies of winemaking. Um, and I, I began to um, kind of touch base with uh, people in the industry here, um, you know, picking up uh, advice at the time that, that I didn't understand would become useful later. Um, and then uh, just by chance, I picked up a copy of The Economist, uh, and I read in The Economist that the Soviet Union in 1985 was the uh, the world's uh, fourth largest producer of wine. Um, I subsequently discovered that the Soviet Union may in fact have been the world's third largest producer of wine, trailing only uh, Spain, or excuse me, trailing only France and Italy. Um, and, and I thought, well, that that's kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe there's an article in that. Um, and so I, uh, in the summer of 2008, I went off to, uh, to do just a little bit of research in Crimea um, before the occupation. Um, and, um, uh, and even then I, I came back not knowing whether this was going to be a book or not, but, but subsequent trips took me to Odessa and to Kiev and Moscow and St. Petersburg and Tbilisi. And before long, I, I knew that, um, this would be a book. Mm-hmm. There, there's so many stories that you have in your book about about viniculture and the history of wine. So when does it begin in Russia or Rus? Yeah, so, well, it's there very early. Um, you know, uh, the, the Russian word for, vi- for wine is a cognate. Um, it's, it's from the Latin vino. Um, and, uh, and vino appears in some of the earliest known Russian language texts, such as the Primary Chronicle. Um, and, um, uh, and of course it's not surprising that, that wine was present in, um, in Kiev and Rus, uh, you know, Kiev and Rus was linked, uh, via the Dnieper and, and the Black Sea to Greek civilization at Constantinople. Um, but, uh, as, uh, East Slavic civilization shifted North and East, um, during the Mongol period, wine disappeared. Um, and it's absent for about 500 years, um, from the 12th, 12th century to the, um, uh, or 13th century to the 17th century. And, um, uh, it, and it comes back as far as we can tell the, the, the first, um, documented, uh, presence of Vitus vinifera, the common European wine grape, um, is in the 1630s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was brought to Astrakhan on the lower Volga, either by Persian merchants on their way to the Austrian court or Austrian merchants on their way to the Persian court. Um, and, uh, but even then, it's, um, you know, it's more of a novelty and it remains a novelty until the time of Peter the Great. And it's Peter's love of wine, mm-hmm. um, you know, his desire to turn Russia into a, a wine producing country that um, kind of sets the stage for the story that I tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, ha- I have a lot of questions about the Petrine period and, and the Tsarist period for you in, in the seven chapters that, that you outline in the book. I wonder if you might talk about 
the organization of the book based on your sources and then based on the early choices that, that you made to arrange it. I think mostly chronologically, right? It seems like mostly like a chronological book. Yeah, it's um, it certainly is. I mean, the chapters are ordered chronologically. It's not, um, you know, cut and dry. There's a little bit of overlap. Um, but, uh, you know, I always look for stories to tell. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm a historian who likes uh, narrative. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that I don't try to write interpretive history as well, but, but I look for interesting stories. And, um, you know, so, so I, I start out, um, uh, you know, this, the chapter that kind of sets the stage, so to speak, is a chapter on the landscapes of wine winemaking. And, and I rely heavily on a late 19th century wine writer named Mikhail Ballas, who, mm-hmm. um, who was, was aware that um, the concept of terroir existed, but he was convinced that terroir as a characteristic manifest in bottles was not present in Russia. Um, never mind the fact that he was describing in his writing something that very much resembled uh, a terroir. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I go from there and I look at uh, the Russian response to the phylloxera epidemic, um, in the, the 1880s and the 1890s, I, I look at debates about what makes wine authentic. Um, I, I look at the, the strange embrace um, be, uh, between the remnants of the czarist wine industry um, in the new Soviet state in the 1920s. Um, I look at the impact of Stalinist terror um, on the wine industry. And, and then I have a couple of, I think, more fun chapters on um, the, the Soviet interaction with the, the, West, the world of Western wine connoisseurs, um, particularly a pretentious um, uh, <laughs> professor from the University of California at Davis who, who visits uh, the Soviet Union on several occasions. Uh, and then I conclude with, um, with the, the Soviet anti-alcoholism campaign in the 1970s and 80s and the impact it had on the, on the, on the, the wine industry. Mm-hmm. And so you've already mentioned terroir and Crimea. I wonder if you could give our listeners a kind of geographical understanding of the wine regions of, of Imperial Russia, Tsarist Russia, or the former Soviet Union, are we talking mainly about Georgia, Bessarabia, Crimea? Where where are the regions which you would describe as wine producing? Yeah, so um, generally speaking, in the northern hemisphere, um, viniculture is is possible right around the ten degrees Celsius isotherm. Um, so so it's that spot on the map where the average temperature is at least ten degrees Celsius. Um, and, and then it actually begins to fade as it was, as you go farther north, it becomes too cold. And as you go farther south, it becomes too hot. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that, that, um, you know, the old czarist empire and the Soviet union had a wine belt, um, a- along the black sea, um, that straddled this 10 degree Celsius isotherm. Um, and, and it stretched from, uh, from present day Moldova in the West, um, in Tsarist times, it was called Bessarabia, um, you know, through Southern Ukraine, the Crimean peninsula and into the Caucasus. Uh, and in fact, both sides of the Caucasus, the North and the, the South, um, 
valleys. Um, and these territories, uh, e- even during Soviet times, these territories accounted for between 70 and 80 percent um, of total Soviet wine production. Wow. And that's not to say that there weren't grapes grown elsewhere. Um, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, Central Asia emerges as yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. As a, as a prominent uh, viticultural region as well. But but there's there's very little, um, uh, you know, difference between where the grapes are coming from in the Tsarist period and where they're coming from in the Soviet period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sometimes, you know, being here in California as well, interviewing you from San Diego to Sonoma, think about these microclimates and, and places where people, you know, begin to associate wine with place and certainly this happens if, if you are talking about Napa and Sonoma. Um, I wonder if, if you could explain a little bit more from early in your book about terroir, what this is, and then how ethnography and, and anthropology factor into it to the point where people begin associating food with soil, with place in the Russian geographical imagination. Yeah, well, the you know the idea of terroir is it's very old, um, and and I rely here um, a great deal on the work of Colleen Guy, who has who has written um, a very good scholarly and popular history of um, of Champagne, um, Champagne in the in the making of, of French national identity. And Colleen um, points out that um, you, you know the the link between um, Place of provenance um, and uh, and food, um, uh, y- you know this. There's evidence of this as early as the 13th and the 14th centuries. Um, in France, in the 19th centuries, it becomes medicalized, um, mm-hmm. and so um, so so. For instance, the the Franco-Prussian defeat. Um, it is linked, among other things, to uh, to the consumption of um, of unhealthy comestibles, and this leads, um, uh, among other things, or this serves as a pretext, among other things, for the codification of the French appellation system. Um, and um, y- you know, and so the the Russian winemakers are. Um, are of course aware of this. I mean, I mean, the idea of terroir exists in Russia, in, you know, in the late 19th century. I mean, it's, it's part of that great borrow, you know, Russian borrowing of French sure. language, French culture that has been going on since, since really the, you know, the time of Catherine, um, if, if not earlier. And, um, uh, but, but at the same time, they're, they're really convinced that um, that uh, Russian consumers are not savvy enough to um, to appreciate terroir, um, and, and so there's no incentive for Russian vintners to develop a um, you know a finely tuned sense of, of terroir in their um, uh, in their wines. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, in, in its um, uh, late 19th and early 20th century uh, manifestation, terroir was a kind of a, um, a scientific principle. There was the belief mm-hmm. that the, the soil um, transmutated itself or the characteristics of the soil transmutated themselves into the berries, you know, much like an alchemist making gold. Hmm. And it was precisely at the at the moment that uh, natural scientists began to question the um, the conceptual 
foundations um, mm-hmm. of that idea of terroir, that terroir really became an anthropological concept, which is what it is today. It, you know, uh, we use it to refer to that intersection between human ingenuity and ecology and grape varietal, and um, and so places like um, Chateau Neuf du Pop. Uh, on the in, in the uh, the Rhone Valley, uh, you know, vintners have over many generations perfected the techniques and the varietals to produce wines that are truly singularities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I have more questions about some of the techniques of, of grafting and things like that. And I'm really interested in your sources on the, the history of science and the science of, of winemaking. Um, I wonder if I could ask you a question about the monarchy, and, and by that I mean from Peter the Great to the last of the czars, how they understood wine culture within the empire. Do, do you see this as kind of a grand patronage effort? Do you see it as a coding of European habits and, and mores in that Peter the Great kind of way, progress in science and modernity? How, how did you read that in the grand story of your book? Well, uh, it, it was all of the above. Um, the, the royal example was a powerful one. Um, and so, so for instance, um, uh, the, the uh, Tokai varietal, which is a grape we, we typically associate with Hungary, um, was very popular at court. Um, and um, uh, in fact, so popular that the, um, the autocracy employed a uh, permanent purchasing agent in Hungary um, to send cases of Tokai back to St. Petersburg. Um, you, you know, so, so without question, this is a, um, a story of, um, of royal patronage. But, but it's also a story about, you know, um, Russia's uh, kind of forcible embrace of, um, of, you know, Western modes of consumption. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we know that Peter preferred wine. I mean, I mean that was yes. his preferred drink. Um, in fact, um, you know, he's so closely associated with wine that the great 19th century critic of the, the so-called Petrine corruption, Mikhail Pagodin, singles out wine, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as evidence. Culprit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he says, you know, before Peter, or even the wine on our tables reminds us of Peter, because before Peter, mm-hmm. we had no wine. And of course, that's not strictly true, but um, but you know the the gist of it um, uh, is is certainly valid. Um, and so, you know, wine became over the course of the 18th century. Wine became the consumption of wine was one of the ways that the Russian aristocracy showed itself to be European. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and indeed, by the by the end of the 19th century, um, you know, Russia is one of the largest foreign markets um, for fine French and German um, fine French and German wines. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm also curious in how you talk about the southern parts of the empire and, and especially in the Caucasus. Um, what's the What's the story of Transimperialism, or let's say these intersections of, of the old Ottoman and, and maybe even Persian empires with the imperial story of wine. How how do you go about um, understanding not just patronage, but but also the people who were involved in the industry, who were developing crown estates, 
um, especially in, in the southern parts of, of the empire. Yeah, so so this is uh, this is very interesting. You know, wine was domesticated in the Russian Empire by virtue of imperialism. Um, so so imperialism was the vehicle which which made domestic winemaking possible. In, in all of these territories, um, you know, from Bessarabia in the west to uh, the Caucasus in the east, they were actually incorporated at, at a fairly late moment um, into the Russian Empire. I mean, this was a you know, began in 1783 with the annexation of Crimea and, uh, you know, was mostly complete by uh, by the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and, and so these were rather late ter- ter- territorial annexations. And, and by, by this moment, of course, um, the consumption of wine had already been established as a European characteristic. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think the corollary of that is that the production of wine was also a European characteristic. Mm-hmm. And, and this raises really interesting questions about the, you know, the nature of the interaction between, uh, you know, the, the Russians on the one hand and the, uh, the Moldovans. Uh, the Crimeans, the Georgians, um, on the other, uh, you know, in some sense, these uh, these people who were brought into the empire were more uh, were more European than the Russians themselves. You know, insofar as they had um, this, um, you know, a, a, a culture and economy of winemaking that was, um, you know, in some cases, many millennia old. Mm-hmm. I mean, Georgia claims to be. Uh, you know, the place where humans first mastered the grape. Um, mm-hmm. This would have been, uh, you know, six millennia before the common era. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and we can contrast this with Russia, which had almost no indigenous vinicultural expertise. Um and, and so, in, in some sense, I, I think the you know the story of viniculture um, uh, during the 18th and 19th centuries it turns on its head the um, you know the imperial hierarchies, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, and then I, I can also add to it that we can we can think of wine as a byproduct of imperialism. You know, the consumption of wine is a byproduct of imperialism in the ways that that the way that many Russians experienced imperialism in the big cities of the north was through the consumption of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so often I, I think the scholarship on, on um, czarist and Soviet imperialism has focused on the ways the czarist and Soviet states tried to modernize and regulate and uh, collate and count. Um, make, sense, <laughs> yeah, make sense of the imperial borderlands. Um, yeah. But this kind of, reder- I think wine suggests we should look the other way as well and, and think about the way the borderlands changed the core. Yeah, I'm really interested in that story that you tell, Stephen, in, in Georgia, and I'm thinking about Dara Goldstein's work. Um, on the one hand, you have this top-down story, I guess I would call it, of administrators who are Russian serving the czars, and they're coming in, and it's their job, like Mikhail Vorontsov, um, with the development of the Crimean wine industry, then to go to other regions. And yet, you know, you have um, locals who are also agents and actors in the story. I wonder if you could introduce 
them. I'm thinking about the peasant vintners and, you know, how they might have been involved one way or another in, in the business or the industry of, of wine production. How, how do you get at that story? Uh, well, let me uh, let me respond by, by focusing on two two different areas. So I'll start with Georgia. Um, you know, in the first um, uh, uh, emissaries of, of Czarist power to um, to arrive in, in Georgia were astounded at the um, the depth of um, uh, of viniculture in, in the local economy. In um, you know, Christian von Steven, the uh, the Finnish botanist, um, when he arrived in Kaheti in the early 1800s, he he wrote that the Kahetian plain was an unbroken swath of vineyards, and, and that's almost certainly embellishment. Um, but um, mm-hmm. but still, it was really it was quite startling to him. And um, but nonetheless, there, there's at, at the same time um, kind of conviction among many of these Russian administrators that Georgian peasants did not fully comprehend the gravity of their endeavor. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, for Georgian peasants, wine was was an unpretentious staple of their their daily diet. It was not, um, you know, a civilizational marker, which is how mm-hmm. the, the understood it. And so the, the Georgian wine industry, um, uh, you know, tended to be very insular. There, there's very, uh, until the late 19th century, there's actually very little Georgian wine that's making it out of Georgia. Um, yeah, and that was surprising to me. That, that was very surprising. Um, yeah. And this is principally because the, you know, the biggest market for Georgian wine are Georgians themselves. Um, right. And most uh, Georgian wine production was occurring at home in the house, you know, uh, you know, in Kaheti, virtually every house would have had a, you know, a, a Kevri in the backyard or in the barn, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, where wine was, was fermented. Um, and, uh, you know, and this really changes, um, you know, the insularity begins to change, um, with the arrival of German colonists. I think there's 480 families from Württemberg, um, who, who arrive in the early 1800s and, and, uh, 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 divide themselves into several vinicultural communities, and then especially the crown estates. Um, in, in a crown, this requires a, a little bit of explanation. A, a crown estate is an estate that is owned directly by the royal family and, and whose proceeds goes directly to the upkeep of the royal family. And, uh, and there was a crown estate um, in Kaheti, um, and it uh, it actually employed at the end of the 19th century. It employed uh, an, an Italian vintner, um, mm-hmm. and by the end of the 19th century, you know, some of these Georgian wines were beginning to appear in um, you know marketplaces in London and Paris. Um, so there is evidence of of some you know foreign demand for. Um, for wine from exotic Kaheti. But, uh, you know, Georgia is is kind of the, the case of insularity. I think Crimea, even before annexation, was, um, you know, was much more closely linked with, um, 
uh, you know, with international markets. Um, and, you know, there were, uh, you know, Crimea was uh, multi-ethnic and multi-confessional. I mean, there were Karaites, there were sure. uh, Greeks, there were Genoans, there were Tatar growers. Um, and some of this wine made its way north, um, you know, to the marketplace places in, in Russia. But some of it was also um, shipped across the, the Black Sea. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so there, the, you know, the Russians, um, you, you know, they encountered, a, I think, a fairly well-developed um, um, wine economy. Although that didn't mean that the Russians didn't disparage the quality of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the Crimeans made. And, and this was, again, a, a way that the, those imperial hierarchies that had been turned on their head by the ubiquity of winemaking in the South, how they could be then righted. So, you know, the Russians brought with them the, um, you know, the expertise, the scientific expertise to make fine wine. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off mm-hmm. yeah i mean i'm very interested in in the shifts that go on in in your book i would say from a, maybe a romantic understanding of sort of colonial development in the south and in the caucuses then to this more positivistic and, and ultimately almost like darwinian struggle for existence mentality about about grapes and I guess, you know, my next question for you would be about the wine blight um, and what it meant for Russia. I guess, you know, people who are familiar with with wine and and food studies will know about the phylloxera epidemic in France and all the effects that it had on the wine industry there. How, How did the Russian imperial societies like the Imperial Society for Agriculture and, and, and others, you know, who are involved as academics in the empire, try, try to resolve this? Because I, I would guess it was pretty catastrophic, um, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it was catastrophic for a wealthy country like France. You can uh, imagine what it did to a comparatively poor country like like Russia, Um so, so phylloxera comes ashore um, in uh, uh, the south sometime in the 1870s. Um, it's, uh, it's first documented um, uh, at an estate outside of Suhumi um, in present-day Abkhazia, um, Georgia. Um, and then it, it spreads uh, particularly through the Dniester River Valley um, in, um, in Moldova. 
And, uh, you know, by the end of the, the, the epidemic, by the end of the blight, um, something like 1,800 square kilometers of vineyards had perished um, in, in, in Moldova. And some of these vineyards actually perished twice. Um, oh, that is, yeah. they perished once, they were replanted, and then they perished again. And the, the campaign against phylloxera was waged um, principally by um, an organization called the Imperial Society for Agriculture in Southern Russia. Um, and um, this was um, headquartered in, um, in Odessa. It had a, um, a building uh, in the municipal garden right off Deribasovskaya Street. Um, and, and the key figure here was, um, was a really very important natural scientist named, um, named Alexander Kovalevsky. Um, and, and, um, you know, Kovalevsky had, had made a name for himself, um, uh, by, uh, studying, um, uh, fossils, um, vertebrate and invertebrate fossils. And, um, his, his work was, um, was so significant that, um, Darwin cited it, um, <laughs> in the, the descent of man. And, um, uh, you know, Kovalovsky considered himself to be, to be a Darwinist, um, mm-hmm. And um, and so when he looked at, at phylloxera, he saw a struggle for existence occurring um, between the European vine, Vitus vinifera, the vine that was endangered, um, and the American vine. Uh, and the American vine was Vitus riparia, that's the riverbank vine, or Vitus labrusca, um, the fox vine. And these were the vi- these vines were were very much coveted by Victorian era gardeners, um, which was actually the vehicle which brought the phylloxera aphid to Europe, probably in the eighteen forties or eighteen fifties. Um, and um, you know, and so the the American vines had evolved alongside um, the phylloxera aphid, and, and they um, had some degree of resistance to phylloxera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Kowalowski, you know, he was a scientific positivist and this was, he was um, active kind of right at the advent um, of chemical agriculture. Um, And Mm -hmm. so he was convinced from the start that the solution to phylloxera lay in some sort of pesticide. Mm -hmm. And and what what they eventually arrived at was was using carbon disulfide. Um, and this carbon disulfide would be injected into the soil in infected vineyards. Um, and it may have been the case that carbon disulfide actually had a palliative effect. So, so vines that were sick, their, you know, their um, eventual death was prolonged by the use of carbon disulfide. But there's actually very little, very little evidence um, that, uh, that carbon di- disulfide um, could permanently cure a vine of infection. Mm-hmm. There is, it, there is, just to be clear, there is no cure for this, right? I mean, there are some yeah. re- regions like in Chile that are maybe not affected or Greece, but there's no, there's still no cure, no clear, no clear cure for it, right? Yeah. So, so, um, the, the solution, as it turned out, um, uh, was timeless. Um, it was ancient. Um, the solution to, to, to phylloxera was vinicultural grafting. Um, and, and so you take the top part of the European grape, Vitus vinifera, 
and you graft it to the rootstock of the American grape, Vitis riparia or Vitis labrusca. Um, and uh, because aphid principally attacks the roots and because the American roots were immune, um, uh, this was a way to protect vineyards. It's obviously also exceedingly expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it basically yeah. meant that, that vineyards had to be uprooted and, and replanted. But, but it also means, you know, when you, you drive through wine country in California or in Bordeaux or in upstate New York and you see a vineyard, you are in fact seeing two species of plants, that have mm-hmm. been grafted together, um, and, and that's the only way to protect um, to protect the vines from from phylloxera. Mm-hmm. But, but Kowalowski was was hesitant to to embrace grafting, uh, uh, in part because he, he he thought that it was the ancient cure, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Cato writes about grafting. Right. <laughs> that's a good point. Cura. <laughs> you know, so it definitely it challenged his scientific positivism. Yeah, um, but he, but he also didn't want to embrace grafting because he thought it meant siding, taking sides in this struggle for existence between mm-hmm. the American vines and the European vines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting throughout your book, Stephen, how how many things are are coded as as western or european or modern or traditional or advanced and i, I guess you know I, I don't want i don't want to let you go without asking big questions about the revolutionary divide in in the soviet period so you know the revolution must have been pretty devastating i'd guess to the aristocratic history of wine culture and even the sort of middle class consumption wine habits how how did the soviets then begin to rework this old kind of monopoly or, or, or system of profit around the industry? Yeah, well, I, I mean, let, let me put this in the, the context of vinicultural disasters. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think when, when you take the entire 19th and 20th centuries um, uh, in, in toto, I, I think we can say that, that Russia and the Soviet Union experienced four vinicultural disasters. There was phylloxera. Uh, a force majeure. Um, there was um, uh, the First World War and revolution. Um, there was uh, the German and Romanian occupation of the the wine belt during the Second World War, mm. um, and then there was Gorbachev's anti-alcoholism campaigns. Um, mm. so all of these were kind of human caused or human exacerbated. Um, and of these four disasters, I think clearly the, 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 the period around the First World War and the revolution was most destructive. Um, mm, that's and interesting. That's in large part because, um, you know, Russia actually loses um, many of its vinicultural possessions. So, for instance, um, uh, Moldova, Bessarabia, is annexed by the, uh, by the Kingdom of Romania. Um, and, and it doesn't return to the Soviet fold until, you know, uh, until the, the famous um, Hitler-Stalin pact. Um, uh, 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 Odessa is, is briefly occupied by, uh, by French forces. Uh, Transcaucasia falls under the control of the British. And, and so Russia, you know, at least temporarily actually loses control um, of, of many of its viticultural territories. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think if, if we look at the, you know, the revolutionary Caesura and what happens to, to wine across the Caesura, 
you know, I, I think we would expect that the wine industry would not fare well under the Soviets. Right. I mean, the, the czarist wine industry was dominated by aristocrats um, and wealthy foreign investors. So, for instance, the Roederer family from Champagne-Ardennes mm. had, a, um, had a, a sparkling wine factory um, in, uh, in Odessa. Um, but, but as it turned out, um, the, um, the cultural meanings of wine actually changed very little. Um, across the revolutionary Caesura. In fact, many of the people who remain behind these czarist holdovers, they um, looked optimistically um, on this uh, kind of newly empowered, uh, newly activist Soviet state because they, they thought that wine was too important to leave to the chaos of the free market. So wine had right. to be Related. And they're they're greatly disappointed in 1921 when uh, you know when Lenin decrees the the NEP retreat and the free market returns to the commercial sector and you know this is uh, th- these people these these uh, holdovers from the czarist wine industry they certainly weren't communists but this just seemed to them to be a betrayal um, yeah. uh, you know, of everything they had hoped for from from the new Soviet state. And obviously, they get their wish um, uh, in in the 1930s with with Stalin. Um, and in 1936, Stalin famously declares that champagne is, is part <laughs> of the good life of socialism. Right. Um, and uh, and and so the, and then the, the Soviet state really takes a, a, a very um, activist role in promoting the development of the domestic wine industry. But, but at the same time, Stalinism would spell the destruction of many of the, these holdovers um, from, from the czarist period. Mm-hmm. Well, could you talk a little bit about the alcohol industry in general in the Stalin period and beyond to the post-Stalin era? What I mean, if we're juxtaposing wine next to champagne, next to vodka, what what is the fate, I guess, both culturally and, and economically of, of the wine industry? As, as you know, finally we get to Gorbachev and the and the fourth catastrophe, as you mentioned, but. There are so many jokes from the 60s and in film, and your book is full of these great sort of humoristic and satiristic sketches. Um, what, what, What happens to the alcohol industry during this period? And then, you know, what's the popular perception of? of both wine and, and champagne and adulterated and unadulterated wines. Well, uh, let me, let me jump, uh, forward all the, all the way to the, the final Soviet decades. So, you know, the, the, the first anti-alcoholism, um, uh, initiatives are approved by the, uh, the Soviet central committee in 1972. And, um, you know, this is the, the Brezhnev period. And, and at this moment, um, there's a, a clear distinction drawn between vodka, which is undeniably destructive to health and welfare and economic performance. And um, uh, so vodka on one hand and then beer and wine on the other. In, in fact, um, the the wine industry, our officials in the wine industry looked at this legislation in 1972, and for the most part, they thought it would be good for them mm-hmm. because finally um, yeah. the Soviet state was going to try to wean consumers from vodka right. Right. and to uh, to promote wine. 
um, as a more healthy alternative to vodka. And, and let me say that there's actually not much evidence that wine is a cure for alcoholism. I, I, um, I had I had I had that question too. <laughs> the evidence that they, they always cited was um, was purely yeah. anecdotal or coincidental. It was they would look at countries like Spain, France, and Italy, where yeah, um, where uh, uh, wine was the principal uh, alcoholic beverage, but uh, alcoholism was was far less common than in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what they hoped. I, I mean, they really hoped that this would lead to this, you know, revitalization. Um, Health, healthy, healthy period, yeah. healthy population. But what, what happens is actually very different. What, what happens is that the, the Soviet wine industry, for a whole variety of reasons, but principally among them is consumer demand, produces something that's called barmatuka. And barmatuka is a, a slang word that comes from the, the Russian word to, to mumble. And, and so barmatuka literally is the wine that makes you mumble. <laughs> and so it is wine that is uh, sweetened uh, typically with beet sugar um, and, uh, and strengthened with grain alcohol to about 19% alcohol by volume. So, mm-hmm. so just so everybody's clear. That's about half strength vodka, right? Vodka is right. proof, forty percent alcohol. In um, in you know in in the nineteen seventies and the early nineteen eighties, Barmatuka comprised um, somewhere around ninety percent of total Soviet wine production, mm-hmm. and it was it was sold as port wine or vermouth or um, aroma of the steppe, or maritime, or, or sometimes just, um, it was just called strong wine, Krepkoye vino. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it was immensely popular uh, among Soviet consumers because it, it really, um, it, it spoke to the Soviet palate for strong and sweet. Um, mm-hmm. And th- this is actually, you know, there's great continuity in taste and the, the Soviet palate is for the most part, also the late czarist palate. Um, the, the preference was for strong wine and sweet wine. And, and as a result of this in, in 1985, when, when Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power and there's another big um, anti-alcoholism initiative, it becomes really more or less impossible to differentiate between wine and vodka anymore because the vast majority of wine is barmatuka. Um, it's half-strength vodka. Uh, no one is, uh, you know, in their right mind would claim that barmatuka is any more healthy than vodka. Um, and so, uh, you know, the result is that, uh, you know, the vineyards and wine industry that was exempted in 1972 is not exempted in 1985. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the Soviet wine industry goes into a very sharp decline um, uh, right at the end of the Soviet period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about this connoisseur, connoisseurship of, of wine, and you mentioned the, the professor from the University of California, Davis, who's the author of all these books and articles. Um, so what, what does this mean, I guess, in your book for the coding of wine consumption? Um, I'm thinking about, you know, travels to, to wine country here in California and elsewhere, Um how, how are you reading this ultimately in the end, if you're comparing the production of, of Russian and Soviet wine with more famous examples like Bordeaux, um, 
regions, you know, in villages outside of Avignon. What 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 does this mean ultimately for the the history and legacy of, of Soviet wine? Is it is it still coded culturally in a particular way through through Russian literature and film and elsewhere? You know, it, um, you know, I, I think your your question speaks to uh, you know one of the um, you know the great joys of of writing about wine, about Russian and Soviet wine from the vantage point of California. Um, and, you know, California was one of the great vinicultural success stories of the 20th century. Um, and it, it really reordered hierarchies, um, in the world of wine beginning in the 1970s and the famous judgment of Paris. Um, and, you know, so much of the optimism, um, you know, this kind of upstart, we're going to show those old world wine right. producers a right. thing or two. You also see that in Tsarist Russia and in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for instance, the acme of, um, of Tsarist winemaking came in 1900. This was the, the year of the, um, uh, the uh, Universal Exposition in, in Paris. And there was a wine tasting in Bordeaux that corresponded with the exposition. Um, and uh, the best in show honors. So, so that is the, the best wine that was competitively tasted was a, a sparkling wine from, uh, from Novi Sviet, um, which at the time was not a crown estate, but would come a, become a crown estate. And, and the, the vintner at Novi Sviet was a, a man named Lev Galitsyn, and of course, the, my Russianist colleagues who are listening to this podcast will recognize the Galitsyn name as one of the oldest right. of the Galitsyns. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Um, and, and you know, Galitsyn always considered himself to be you know a real Russian patriot. Um, but he said that the title that mattered most to him um, was uh, Russian vintner. Like that. That's it. Was the identity that that he assumed. And so there was this moment, you know, at, at the beginning of the 20th century, where it appeared that Russia was going to become what California and Australia and Chile um, and Argentina would become over the course of the 20th century. Um, but but of course that that potential was mostly squandered. Um, you know, again in, in the 1960s and the 1970s, Soviet vintners um, begin to um, uh, to uh, submit their bottles for international review, principally in the socialist world, but sometimes on on rare occasions. Uh, beyond the ideological frontier, you know, and, and they, the, the results are modest. Like they win, you right. know, if you remember a, a label for Soviet champagne, it was always adorned with medals from international tasting competitions in Ljubljana, mm-hmm. um, in Budapest, in um, Bratislava, and, you know, the sort of capital cities of, of the socialist world. But my, you know, my, my vintner goes... Uh, my, my vintner from UC Davis, Maynard Amarin, um, visits Russia on three occasions in the 1960s and the early 1970s. Um, and, you know, Amarin was, was such a beautiful find for me because I, I think we have this expectation that as Russianists, all our sources are in Russia. Um, But in fact, I found, you know, these really wonderful travel journals that were just, you know, 40 miles from from where I live. Mm -hmm. 
And, and Amarin took really copious tasting notes. Um, and for the most part, the wine he tasted in the Soviet Union was, um, I don't know what the adjective is here, abhorrent to him, <laughs> repulsive. Too sweet. Um, yeah, just, it, it, but, but interestingly, he did not think the wine was flawed for mystical reasons. Like he, he, ne- he yeah. didn't ever put much stock in, you know, right. terroir or anything like that. He, he, he thought that just the winemakers were making mistakes. And, and they interestingly, the socialist economy lacked the feedback mechanisms that made fine wine routine rather than a, than a matter of chance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, as a historian, I have to say taste is one of the hardest things to write about because we're really dependent upon the people we write about also describing taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I when I found these uh, travel journals and special collections over at UC Davis, I knew right away. I mean, within about five minutes of reading, I knew that <laughs> I had something that was was really precious because he was writing about taste you know mm-hmm. and he was scoring bottles and in in you know he had this sort of very colorful language to describe most of the bottles that were flawed in his view and why they were flawed mm-hmm. yeah I, I was thinking about that too Stephen you know what what wine your book should be paired with um, <laughs> um, when it's consumed Um yeah. So I, I guess, you know, the final question I have for you is if you could if you could maybe recommend um, up to the present, because you, you cover everything, really, including Russian Georgian politics and, you know, the embargo on, on, on Georgian wines. What, what sort of books do you, are you interested in or writings among people in, in this field? Well, how, how about I recommend both wine and books? Yeah, let's do that. Um, let's do that. You okay, can be our so, sommelier. <laughs> yeah. Well, well first, you, you know, a word of warning, it's not easy to find wine from the former Soviet Union in the United States. Although I think with a little bit of, of effort, it's possible. So I, I, would, um, I, I would recommend two wines. Um, uh, any bottle from Pheasant's Tears, um, which is a, a, a company uh, in Signagi in eastern Georgia. Um, and Pheasant's Tears actually makes wine in the traditional Georgian way. So the, the grapes are aged not in oak barrels, but in um, in kevri, in amphorae that are uh, lined with beeswax and buried in the ground. Um and then, so that's the first wine I would I would recommend. The second would be any bottle of Soviet champagne. Um, and, and I know they're obtainable in the states because they I are. just yeah I just drank a bottle a couple days ago. Um, and, uh, and and that was the most popular wine um, within the Soviet Union, the most okay. popular label within the Soviet Union. Okay. And, Book, and then and, and books. What what books? And then for books, um, I would recommend Colleen Guy's um, Making Champagne French, um, uh, which is kind of the classic in the world of um, historical literature um, about wine. Um, and, and then uh, a book which is uh, not yet published but will very soon be published is uh, Jennifer Regan Lefebvre's um, Imperial Wine, which is um, a, a story about how the British Empire made uh, the world of winemaking in the Antipodes um, in Australia, New Zealand, um, and uh, South Africa. Um, and, and that book should be out very shortly. Um, 
Excellent. And finally, um, this truly is my last question. I want to know, and our listeners here on Nubix Network want to know what you're working on now. What's next for you? Oh, um, so I have uh, two two very different projects in the hopper. Um, so I've, uh, and they're very different from wine. I'm interested in um, uh, the, the smaller project is uh, something on the, the Soviet presence in Antarctica, Antarctica um, where, the, where the Soviets maintained a research base um, at the magnetic South Pole. Uh, the, the Americans were at the geographic South Pole. Um, and, and I'm not sure if that's going to be a book or a series of articles, but, but that's one thing I'm working on this summer. And then the other is I, I have a bigger project going on the, the places where, um, where refugees from Bolshevism encountered refugees from Nazism. Uh, and, uh, and I'm really interested in the, the spatial component here, the places. Um, and, and one of those places is here in California. Um, it was in Los Angeles, which where the uh, Hollywood studio system provided employment um, for many people who were fleeing the the great isms of the 20th century. Um, and, and so I'm, this is I anticipate this will be a sort of prosopographical project. So I'm interested in the interrelations between these uh, two groups of refugees. Mm-hmm. Well, um, again, you know, Stephen, thank you so much for, for joining us here on the podcast for, for New Books Network and for New Books in, in Russian and Eurasian Studies and New Books History and New Books Food. I want to congratulate you on your book. Uh, the book is called Whites and Reds, A History of Wine in the Lands of Tsar and Commissar, just out now with Oxford University Press. My guest here, Stephen Bittner, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Stephen. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Until next time here on the New Books Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.